my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your evil Saint Nick, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode features Jolly Jaws, Cannibal Christmas, and Fudged Rituals. Come on over to my house for Christmas dinner where we can chat about horror movies. You definitely won't become the main course. Number one, Santa Jaws, 2018, directed by Misty Tally. A young comic book artist named Cody is given a magical pen from his grandfather. Cody draws the titular character from a comic book he's working on called Santa Jaws. The festive shark becomes reality and kills a bunch of people, including Cody's friends and family. Cody writes that whoever defeats Santa Jaws will get a wish in his comic book before lighting it on fire. Santa Jaws is defeated, and Cody's wish brings everyone back. You know whose fault this whole situation really is? Grandpa's. What the hell, Gramps? You can't gift a magical pen that can make anything a reality to a dumb teen without explaining what it's capable of. You are obligated to give the recipient the Uncle Ben speech. With great power comes great responsibility. Cody doesn't speak German, so the German inscription on the pen case does not count as a warning. This is mostly going to be a rant about the magical pen, so before I go off the deep end, Santa Jaws is a bad time. It's painfully mediocre. None of the humor lands. There aren't any explicit references to the movie Jaws outside of one character obnoxiously slurping on some water, possibly being this movie's version of the nails on the chalkboard. Almost all of the line delivery is unnatural to the extreme. Reed Miller, who played Cody, is the only person who's attempting to act. There is a hilarious scene where Cody goes off on his parents that's overacted but fun. Overacting is preferable to the complete lack of energy the rest of the cast provides. Cody's parents, his mother especially, are the true villains of the movie. Dad backs up mom no matter what. Mom is a truly despicable monster. She constantly berates and punishes Cody for no reason. It would have made sense if the mom said something along the lines of, Heh <laughs> I fooled you all, at the end of the movie before ripping off her own face, revealing it to be a mask that was being worn by none other than Satan himself the entire movie. She's that evil to Cody. Everyone besides mom and dad are nice to Cody, even his rich uncle who is introduced in a way that makes you think he's going to be an ass, is a good dude to Cody. In the beginning, Santa Jaws only kills people that are good. Cody's grandfather, uncle, a random guy dressed as an elf, Cody's friends. Santa Jaws isn't something to be scared of. Santa Jaws is the inevitable, bitey rapture that ferries good souls to holiday heaven. 
Praise be to Santa Jaws, our festive and loving goddess. Santa Jaws is a lady shark. Female great whites are generally larger than males. One of, if not the largest great white sharks currently living is a 20-foot behemoth. Her name's Deep Blue. That's a big, beautiful shark. It's time to complain about the magical pen. Santa Jaws is made reality by a magical pen. A friend of Cody's comes into ownership of said pen. He draws a Russian girlfriend, a bunch of money, and a fancy old car. All of this magically becomes real and proves that you can draw multiple things with the pen. Am I disappointed that no one decided to draw a boom anime babe with the pen? Of course. It would have been a way better gag if instead of drawing a Russian girlfriend, the pen stealer inked a ridiculous waifu. Absurdity is a must when you have a magical pen that can make anything reality in your movie. Santa Jaws killed a bunch of people. Draw a resurrection machine. You need to kill Santa Jaws? Draw a magic wand that makes Christmas sharks disappear from existence. The possibilities are endless. How does Cody use the pen to attempt to defeat Santa Jaws? He draws a candy cane spike in her head which turns into a horn. That's mostly it. What's wrong with this kid? Does he have zero imagination? He was just the artist for the comic, so maybe the writer was the one who came up with all the ideas. It can't be stressed enough how underutilized the magic pen is in Santa Jaws. If you are going to have a magic pen be the catalyst for everything, you have to keep using it unless it's destroyed. Here, I'll, I'll fix this for you. Cody doesn't realize drawing Santa Jaws with the pen is what brought her to life. His friend uses the pen and realizes it can make anything reality. The friend is a greedy idiot who runs away with the pen just like he already does. The friend is eaten by Santa Jaws while holding the pen. The pen is out of the equation. Boom. You're welcome, Santa Jaws. The best fix is to leave the pen out entirely and have Santa Jaws become reality due to a silly holiday wish or something. Santa Jaws is excruciatingly mediocre. It has the smallest sprinkle of so bad it's good, but the majority of the movie is simply uninspired garbage. If Santa Jaws became Christmas dinner, the movie would have been saved. It doesn't surprise me to learn that this is the fourth craptastic shark movie the director has done. I'm assuming that Mississippi River Sharks, Ozark Sharks, and Shark Island are the same quality as Santa Jaws. These are cash grab movies. I respect the hustle, but I don't have to recommend the trash. Number 2, Tales from the Crypt, 1972, directed by Freddie Francis. A group of strangers wander into a crypt together. A robed man tells them how they ended up here. A woman named Joan killed her husband before being killed by a maniac Santa. A man who was having an affair died in a car crash. A horrible rich kid drove a nice old man to kill himself. The old man's spirit then killed the rich kid. A businessman who's on the brink of bankruptcy died after his wife wished for more money, which was granted by a life insurance payout. A military man poorly ran a home for the blind, which resulted in the death of one of the residents. The remaining residents set up a deadly trap for the military man. The group is then sent to hell. Joan, a maniac Santa, a car crash, a horrible rich kid, a poorly worded wish, and a military man are the killers. The wife made the wish, but she didn't in any way convey that she wanted her husband to die as a result. The blind residents might deserve to be on the list too since they made a nasty saw-like trap for the military man. 
They starved his dog and built a narrow hallway from the military man's room to the dog's room that had razor blades sticking out everywhere. That's pretty evil revenge considering the military man didn't mean for anybody to die of hypothermia. It's like they were waiting for anyone to cross them to live their jigsaw fantasy. Tales from the Crypt pops up on a lot of best holiday horror lists. It wasn't until after watching the 1972 movie that I realized that the movie isn't what's normally listed. People usually bring up an episode of the Tales from the Crypt TV show called All Through the House. Welp, the 1972 movie does in fact include a killer Santa, so it still counts as holiday horror. The Santa segment is the classic character hears on the radio that a lunatic has escaped from a nearby facility story. The small added twist is that the character Joan is a murderer herself. Her husband, who she murdered, didn't seem like that bad of a dude from his short stint alive on camera. Now Joan's daughter, on the other hand, is the worst. Being a dumb kid doesn't excuse you from letting an obviously evil Santa into your abode. If I had to choose a death from all the scenarios, it would have to be the car crash. The worst death, by far, is the businessman's. Not only does he die of a heart attack, he's then brought back with the wish that he never dies, which ends with him living in excruciating pain eternally. His wife makes the wish, and after seeing that her husband is in horrendous pain, tries to fix the situation with a sword, but only ends up making everything worse. The gore effects for this segment were surprising. The man's guts end up exposed from his wife's slicing. I'm assuming bloodless animal intestines were used. Whatever portrayed the man's insides looked gross and fantastic. That's the best instance of gore in the movie. The other gore that's included must have literally been red paint for the blood that appears with the husband murder and the military man razor conundrum. The acting is what you'd expect from an anthology-style movie in 1972. It's fine. It's a bit wild to see Peter Cushing play a sweet old man instead of a villain for once. Strangely enough, I haven't seen any of his roles in Hammer Productions horror movies. The 1972 Tales from the Crypt movie is an enjoyable time. The stories are fun and entertaining. A majority of the segments are way less predictable than you'd expect. Consider checking it out. I had no idea the Tales from the Crypt comic series has been around since 1950. This movie has been my first tango with the franchise. I was aware of the HBO series growing up, but I was too young to watch it. If I ever get HBO Max and it's on there, I'll give it a go. Number 3, Mercy Christmas, 2017, directed by Ryan Nelson. A sweet and loving man named Michael Brisket is invited to a co-worker's Christmas dinner. He eats some food and does a toast thanking everyone for having him. Right after, his boss, Mr. Robillard, shows up and Michael passes out from drinking drugged eggnog. Michael comes to tied up in the basement with other captives. The nice co-worker that invited Michael to Christmas was his boss's sister. The Robillards are cannibals. They eat and kill one of the captives and cut off and eat another's legs. Eddie, the legless captive, frees himself and Michael. Catherine, the other living captive, is in too bad a shape to walk on her own. Eddie attaches himself to Michael's back. They escape the house and kill one of the cannibals. Michael is compelled to go back and save Catherine. 
So they re-enter the Flesh Eater house and battle the family. All the family members are killed, and Eddie appears to have bitten the big one. Michael and Catherine survive. Eddie is shown still technically alive during the credits. The Robillards are the killers. In most horror movies, I find it hard to care about the main characters outside of movies like Scream, Sydney can never die. If anything happened to Michael Brisket, the purest, most wholesome being, I would have destroyed everything. Well, not if anything happened, because Mikey B does in fact have a bad time at the Robillard home, but I would have gone to bed furious if my boy Brisket didn't survive the movie. Kudos to Mercy Christmas for having such an amazing main character who also happened to be chubby. The chubby representation in horror movies is abysmal. Normally the chubby character is obnoxious, comic relief, or a weird mixture of the two. Characters that I'm picturing right now are the annoying brother in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and that dumb clown in Friday the 13th Part 3. Now I'll picture the brave, courageous, heartful of gold Michael Brisket who might have the hunger. You know, the insatiable craving for human flesh that you have after consuming the tasty forbidden meat. I'm assuming it's tasty. I've never partaken in people myself. Michael did eat ribs with the Robillards before being drugged. Mercy Christmas doesn't explicitly reveal that the delicious looking ribs that Michael cleaned were in fact that of a human, but given the Robillards' penchant for cannibalism, there's a high chance that Michael Brisket is technically a cannibal now. If you eat your own kind once, are you considered a cannibal? What if a friend of mine has their limb removed from their body in a tragic accident? The best doctors in the world attempt to reattach the appendage with no luck. Are we not supposed to throw an arm BQ with our closest friends to feed our curiosity? It's possible that it wouldn't even taste good and the hunger isn't real. Simply, if you eat human once, don't dig it, and have no desire to eat it again, are you a cannibal? Also yes, if I lose a limb in a freak accident, yada yada yada, anyone that's interested in a bite is welcome to one. Keyword, accident. Don't try to hack any of my limbs off, please. Let's move away from this hypothetical cannibalism discussion. The acting in Mercy Christmas is surprisingly decent. It's not incredible, but compared to most holiday horror movies of this level, it's pretty good. Stephen Hubble oozes likability as Michael Brisket. He won the award for Best Actor at the Portland Underground Film Fest. It looks like he normally works as a grip. If one actor had to be singled out as the weakest performance, it would be Cole Gleason, who plays Andy Robillard, Michael's bloodthirsty boss. He doesn't bring the right campy energy for the role and ends up scowling his way through the entire movie. The most brutal kill in the movie is when Eddie bludgeons Denise, the fiance of one of the Robillard brothers, to death with a clothes iron. Did she deserve to die? She did find out about the people being murdered and eaten, stomped one of the captives, and ate human meat, but her death seemed excessive. Andy deserved the death Denise received. Granny Robillard is also bashed to death with the clothes iron, but her death is a lot more comical. Denise's was yeesh to the extreme. There's also a vibe that Denise might be undercover, so there are definitely some mixed feelings surrounding her demise. 
Andy's head is lit on fire, which is fun, even though the logistics of it don't make any sense. There's almost a 0% chance that throwing a cup full of eggnog on a string of Christmas lights will instantly create a face-melting fire. I'm definitely out of my element, though. Are the Mythbusters still a thing? I could test this out myself with some old lights and dangerously alcoholic nog, but don't want to burn down my apartment if I'm wrong. The Humor and Mercy Christmas isn't amazing, but it's a hilarious masterpiece compared to Santa Jaws. Mercy Christmas is a delightful, cannibal Christmas movie. If you're running out of holiday horror to watch, Mercy Christmas is far from the worst thing you could put on. That would be Red Christmas. Ugh. Number 4, Shiten, 2006, directed by Kim Shapiron. After leaving a nightclub, a trio of insufferable jerks, Lodge, Bart, Ty, and their bartender friend Yasmin head to a country home of a girl named Eve that Ty met. Along the way, they meet a strange man named Joseph, who Eve refers to as the housekeeper. During a dinner, Joseph tells a story about a man that received invincibility from the devil, then banged his own sister. She got pregnant, and the devil told the man he had to present the child with a gift. Joseph has been collecting stuff from Bart, like his hair and clothes. Joseph goes berserk after some locals play a prank on the city kids. The jerk trio bails and leave Yasmin. Bart protests and goes back for her. Once back at the house, Bart has his eyes removed and placed on a doll that Joseph's wife and sister has been making to give to her baby that has just been born. It looks like Eve and others are the incestuous children of Joseph and Mary. Cerberus is the killer. Huh? Who the hell is Cerberus? Cerberus is Joseph's dog, who, pet warning, kills Bart's dog. It's not all that graphic, Bart's dog just lays down in some fake blood. Shiten, or shite, as I'll be referring to it, sucks. I'm not even going to be clever. I'm just going to come out and say this movie plain sucks. The cinematography is a complete mess that heavily features shaky, frenetic shots throughout. Even more chaotic than the cinematography is the editing. That should definitely have a warning for people that have motion sickness. It looks like shite. And almost every single character is a complete garbage person, with Bart being crowned the deplorable king. He spews toxicity and hate at a woman that doesn't accept his advances at the nightclub. This leads to him getting glassed by a dude. It feels weird to cheer for someone that breaks a bottle over another person's head at a club, but when the victim is Bart, I'd love to see all the bottles broken over his thick skull. Other amazing things Bart does. He kicks goats, ruins some of Eve's dolls, assaults locals. Early on in the movie, he has a dream where he sexually assaults Yasmin, who in the dream is into Bart groping her in her sleep. Bart is such a despicable piece of human filth, he even sexually assaults women in his dreams. As you can see, Bart is set up for the most brutal come up into death of all time. He doesn't even die. None of these trash people die. Bart's eyes are removed, but that's not enough for his crimes. Him foregoing escape to go back for Yasmin does not absolve him of his past behaviors. For all the audience knows, he's just going back to sexually assault her like in his dreams. Compared to Bart, Lodge and Ty are saints. Sure, Lodge is cheating on his girlfriend with Yasmin, and Ty's a complete moron, but at least they aren't Bart. 
Before I forget to mention it, Joseph is insanely racist. He throws slurs at everyone that isn't white. When you are cheering for the satanic racist to painfully kill the only main character that goes back to try and save Yasmin, there's a problem. The acting's whatever. The gore is almost non-existent. Well, outside of ravens tearing a mouse apart, that wasn't something I wanted to see. Nothing happens in shite. You expect the city kids to start being picked off one by one by Joseph and his incestuous Satan brood, but nope. Barely anything happens in the first hour, let alone the whole movie. There's a motorcycle chase after the prank gone wrong where Bart and Ty on one bike chase two locals on another. The locals end up crashing and it's possible one or both died, but an ambulance shows up and death isn't confirmed. Their fate has no impact on the story. Do not waste your time with Shiten. It's a frustrating watch that'll just make you angry about wasting an hour and 30 minutes of your life for absolutely no payoff. Oh, it's technically a Christmas movie. It takes place mostly on Christmas Eve. That's why I watched this garbage. Now that the section is over, I can admit that I really liked Vincent Cassell's performance as Joseph, but... Everything else was just the worst. I didn't even bring up the part where Joseph's niece molests Bart's dog. Number 5. Christmas Presents 2018, directed by James Edward Cook. A group of friends meet up at a rented mansion for Christmas. Weirdness starts occurring. One of the friends named Mackenzie reveals that her sister went missing in the woods near the mansion when they were younger. A strange entity starts killing everyone. Mackenzie learns that her sister was killed by the entity. Mackenzie, who ends up the sole survivor, jumps into the mansion owner's truck thinking she's been saved. He knocks her out and puts her in a box along with the corpses of her friends. He then leaves the box for the evil entity at its shrine in the woods and directly talks to the audience about Boxing Day as he leaves. An evil entity and a mansion owner are the killers. I needed to watch another holiday horror movie, so here's Christmas Presents. A movie that was probably slapped together after the puntastic title was realized. Should a movie called Christmas Presents be a goofy horror comedy about a ghost Saint Nick? If I had any say in it, yeah. The Christmas Presents that exist doesn't include any jolly specters. It does have a shape-shifting entity that feeds on its victims' biggest fears, just like a Bogart in Harry Potter, which I'm only referencing since the movie brought up J.K. Rowling. I'm not a nerd. Well, that kind of nerd. Christmas presents include some genuinely creepy moments, like when one of the mansion goers sees a shadowy figure in the woods, when another sees a shadowy figure in the corner, and when Mackenzie sees a shadow... Uh, the entity take the form of her long-dead sister. Shadowy figures are spooky. Thing is, almost every genuine fright is quickly ruined by some sort of silliness. For example, the shadowy figure in the corner turns into a cosplay knockoff of the Grand High Witch from Witches and bursts out into a song and dance. It's confusing. Maybe the character is some festive British icon I've never heard of that kids are usually afraid of. Besides the ruined scares, another big issue with the movie is the friend group. Everyone seems to hate each other. It never really makes sense why these people are hanging out at all when there seems to be an underlining disdain between all of them. 
the hate isn't an acting issue. The acting from everyone is fine. The story isn't the most compelling, but that's an issue with the script. None of the characters end up being all that likable. The friend that dies first named Hugo is one of the best characters. It was a bummer to lose him so early into the movie. He does come back since the entity morphs into him to try to trick Mackenzie, but it would have been preferable if he had more time as a normal human being in the movie. There isn't a lot of gore, but there are some decent bits here and there. The best gore comes from one of the dead characters reanimating and pulling a knife out of their throat. Another character has a run-in with a knife and their throat when they are compelled to slash it by the entity. Both instances of neck gore look solid. A huge issue with Christmas presents is the lighting. About half the movie is a dark mess where it's hard to tell what exactly is happening. No one wants to constantly set up and take down lights, but the audience needs to be able to see what's going on. The fourth wall break at the end by the mansion owner felt cheesy and soured an already mediocre ending. If the entity is able to kill all these people, why would it need some guy to box up the corpses? I know the answer to that question is the Boxing Day joke, but the joke didn't land. Christmas Presents is far from the worst holiday horror movie I've seen, but it's still not worth checking out unless you've seen all the good stuff and feel compelled to watch new holiday horror every year like some podcast-making buffoon. At least the pun was fun. Number 6, Anything for Jackson, 2020, directed by Justin G. Deke. Henry and Audrey Walsh kidnap a pregnant woman named Shannon with a plan to have their dead grandson Jackson possess her unborn baby with the help of an ancient spellbook. The couple perform what they believe to be the ritual for that sort of thing. A demon shows up and it looks like Jackson has taken over the baby. Other spirits start appearing in the couple's house. A groundskeeper and police officer are compelled to kill themselves on the grounds. The couple approach a fellow Satan worshipper named Ian to help them, since it doesn't seem like the possession is going according to plan. After finding out that the ancient book and spells within it are real, Ian plans to do his own ritual to summon a demon that will destroy the world under the guise that he will complete the ritual the couple started. Ian kills his own mom, then kills Audrey for the ritual. A spirit takes Ian away after he completes the ritual and kills him. Audrey dies and so does Henry after a demon bursts out of him. Shannon escapes and sees the demon walk into the woods. She apprehensively touches her pregnant belly. The Walshes and Ian are the killers. The Walshes are on the list since the ritual they started compelled others to kill themselves. Anything for Jackson includes an ancient grimoire, dangerous rituals, evil spirits, and demons, so obviously it's a fantastic time. Julian Richings and Sheila McCarthy played the Walshes. Both of them are fantastic. Constantina Mantelos gave a good performance for someone that is handcuffed to the bed for most of the movie. The best performance might actually be from Josh Crudess, who played the Satan-worshipping Ian. Crudess brought the perfect level of oddball, outcast weirdness to the character. There should be a spin-off movie that's all about Ian. Before watching anything for Jackson, I saw at least one person on the internet refer to it as a horror comedy. So I went in expecting it to be one, even though IMDb and other contemporaries have it listed as just regular horror. I found the movie to have genuine spookiness and subtle comedy throughout. 
My fiance Kat watched the movie with me and didn't agree that the comedy was done purposely. Maybe an older couple clumsily performing ancient dark rituals is just inherently comedic. Maybe I've just seen so many horror movies that I'm beginning to find more and more things that shouldn't be funny, funny. I can't even give an explicit example of something funny that happened, because anything for Jackson isn't a laugh-out-loud type funny. Its humor comes from the absurdity of the situations the Walshes find themselves in. Almost all of the creepiness in anything for Jackson works. The only thing that ended up being a little too goofy was the initial demon that showed up. The demon has a big old bird skull head and ends up looking more silly than scary. It is possible that others might find the bird boy spooky. The other designs are incredible. There's a contortionist ghost that's accompanied with amazing bone cracking sound design. The groundskeeper telling the Walshes that Jackson has possessed the baby when he shouldn't have any idea that's happening right before dunking his upper half into the blades of an overturned snowblower. The grotesque demon that wiggles its way out of Henry's back. Anything for Jackson is filled with genuine creepiness. I had such a fun time watching the movie that I thought to myself, you know what, I should definitely check out the director's other horror movies. Unfortunately, the director, Justin G. Deeks, past filmography isn't full of horror movies. It's packed with what appears to be Christmas rom-coms. I'm not here to dog on someone making a living. There seems to be good money in Christmas movies. It's snowing in anything for Jackson. The holidays aren't explicitly referenced, but the snow gives wintry vibes. Anything for Jackson is a fantastic horror movie that you'll either find creepy or funny and creepy. It's amazingly entertaining throughout. It should go right to the top of your horror movie watch list. IMDB Trivia says there are three hidden ghosts in the movie. I didn't catch any myself. Keep your eyes peeled. Number seven. So I rewatched Krampus. Right after I said I was coming around to Krampus on the last episode, I decided to rewatch it. I don't like Krampus. While it does have some amazing practical effects and designs for Krampus and his toy minions, everything else about the movie is bad. The characters are awful. The only character who's not the worst is Beth, and she's the first one to die. Max, the forced protagonist kid, is horrendously annoying and way too old to be writing letters to Santa. Are you supposed to feel bad for the kid when his cousins clown on him by stealing and reading his Santa letter out loud? The grandma knows what's going on. She's been through the Krampus onslaught before. She doesn't say anything until people are already dead. Adam Scott isn't charismatic or funny enough for the dad role. Heartwarming moments like when country uncle David Kay thanks nerdy Adam Scott are ruined by failed attempts at humor right after. Speaking of failed humor, Aunt Dorothy is around only to be a vessel for tired, crappy jokes. So Krampus ends up having this cast of insufferable characters that you never feel like rooting for. Krampus came to this town and killed everyone since Max tore up a letter he wrote to Santa. That's dumb. I find it hard to believe that all the other families and people in the area deserve to die. I wish Krampus included how other families were dealing with the situation. Kill off Max and his garbage family quickly, then jump to a family we can actually care about. 
Not only does dumbass Max get everyone killed, he then asks Krampus to bring them back so they can all be stuck in a Christmas snow globe for all eternity. Ruining their lives wasn't enough for you, Max. You had to go after their afterlives, too? Max doesn't even get a brutal death. The person that deserves to come up into death the most just gets a one-way ticket to the snow globe without any destruction of his mortal coil. In closing, I apologize for recommending Krampus. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 87, Jolly Jaws, Cannibal Christmas, and Fudged Rituals. I hope you all had some happy horror holidays. Rating review iTunes like what you heard. That's the only present I want. I'll be back to non-holiday horror movies next episode, which will be out on January 10th. Until then, make sure to avoid drawing things that can potentially kill you with the magical pen that can make any doodle into reality.